it's the story of God doing several things. He made a promise and he's keeping his promise. It reveals the corruption and wickedness of mankind in the relentless grace of God, in spite of our sinfulness. And God is unthwarted in bringing our Savior to rescue us. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Fox Den. In the last several episodes, I began a series telling the Bible story. And in this episode, I'll cover the storyline from 1 Samuel to Esther. To begin, let me remind you where we are in the story. At this point, Israel has been in the Promised Land for about 300 years, and there was no king. And the people did what was right in their own eyes. They rejected God, and they did not live as God intended. They worshipped false gods of the inhabitants they were supposed to drive out, and they also engaged in depraved conduct. And that leads us into 1 Samuel. In this book, we see the birth of Samuel and his early childhood. Then in chapter 3, we see God calling him to service. And verse 20 states that everyone knew he was a prophet. Then in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, we find that Samuel judged Israel. And then in chapter 8, we see that the people asked for a king. Now, there are some problems here. First, they wanted to be like the other nations. We see that in chapter 8, verse 5. But even more significant than that, they rejected God. We see that in verse 7. God was their king, but they didn't want him as their king. They wanted a king like all other nations. They wanted a human king. So God told Samuel, go ahead, let the people have a king. And Samuel warns the people about their earthly king. He tells them that the king will take from them. And when they cry out to God, he's not going to listen. We see that in chapter 8, verses 10 through 18. So in chapter 10, we see that Samuel anoints Saul to be the first king of Israel. And everything seems to be going well. Saul defeats the Ammonites, we see in chapter 11. However, Saul makes a huge mistake. In chapter 11, the Philistines are prepared to fight Israel, and the people are terrified. Saul waited seven days for Samuel, the time that Samuel appointed, but he didn't come. And the people scattered from Saul. So in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 9, we see Saul taking matters into his own hands, and he offered a burnt sacrifice, something he was never authorized to do. And after he finished offering the sacrifice, Samuel arrived and reprimanded Saul for disobeying God. And now, as a result of his foolishness, Saul will lose the kingdom. We see that in chapter 13, verse 14. You see... God says he's looking for a man after his own heart. Again, we see that in verse 14. So in chapter 15, God rejects Saul as king, and he chooses another king. In chapter 16, verse 1, God calls Samuel to anoint another king. Now, we see the character of Saul revealed here in verse 2. Samuel's afraid to anoint another king because Saul would kill him. You see, it seems Saul was not that great of a king after all. So Samuel obeys God, and he goes to Jesse to appoint one of his sons as king. And when he's there, Jesse brings his first son, and Samuel thinks, this is the guy. But God told him, no, it's not. God tells him, don't look at the appearance. God looks at the heart. So Jesse brings out all of his sons, and God says no to all of them. And Samuel asks if there's another, and Jesse says there is. He has the youngest, but he's out tending sheep. So they called David, and Samuel anointed David as king. 
in chapter 16, verse 13. Now keep in mind, Saul is still king, even though Samuel anointed David as king. But God rejected Saul as king, but he's still there in the role. Well, sometime later, the Philistines gathered to fight against Israel, and from their camp came Goliath, their champion. Goliath was a large and intimidating man, and the Israelites were afraid of him. So David's older brothers were out there on the front line, but David was not. David was actually tasked with taking provisions out to his brother. Well, while he's out there, he says that he would fight Goliath. So David confronted Goliath and killed him. And after this, the Philistines fled. Now, here's an important piece that reveals David's heart. He credits God for the victory. We see that in 1 Samuel 17, verse 47. And then after this, the people sang David's praises, and this made Saul jealous. From this point on, Saul tried to kill David several times over the remainder of his reign. Now, interestingly enough, David had a couple opportunities to kill Saul, but he refused to do so. He recognized that Saul was God's anointed. So what we see from 1 Samuel 19 to 1 Samuel 31 is David running from Saul because Saul is trying to kill him. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 1, David hears of Saul's death. So now David is king. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David. And he tells him that he will establish an eternal kingdom through a descendant of David. We see that in verses 12 to 16. When you look at the two genealogies of Jesus in Matthew 1 and Luke 3, you see that he is a descendant of David. Now let me point something out here. The covenant that God makes with David is related to Genesis 3.15. Remember when God promised Satan that an offspring of Eve would defeat him? Not only is Jesus a descendant of David, he's a descendant of Eve. Furthermore, not only does God make a covenant with David, but God continues to fulfill his covenant with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, God promised Abraham that he would make Abraham a great nation and Abraham would be a blessing. And then in Genesis 15, 5, God promised Abraham numerous offspring. Now, if we fast forward to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says that Abraham is the father of the faith. It's not the biological descendants who are the children of the promise. It's the children of faith, the people who believe the promise of God in Christ. These are the children of the promise. And we see that in Romans chapter 4, verses 16 to 25, and in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Now, we see in God's covenant with David, a descendant of Abraham will rule eternally. You see, he will be a blessing. And there's only one person that this can be, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, everything seemed to be going smoothly with David and his rule. He appears to be a good king. Then something tragic happened that changed everything. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David took the wife of another man and got her pregnant, and her name was Bathsheba. Now, to cover his tracks, he called her husband from battle to be with his wife. You see, her husband was one of his soldiers. So he calls him back from battle, and he tells him to go be with his wife. Now, this man was a good soldier, and he refused to stay with his wife because his comrades were out at war. So David sends Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back to the front lines and he gives instructions to the commander 
to put him out on the front line, and when the battle is fierce, pull the forces back, leaving Uriah alone with the enemy. So the commander follows David's orders, and Uriah is killed in battle. You see what David did? He had Uriah killed in order to cover his sin with Bathsheba. Maybe David isn't a great king after all. He committed adultery and murder. Now, as a side note, take a look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. You see four women named in the line, but you don't see Bathsheba. Why isn't her name there? Is she not in the line of Christ? She is, but you don't see her name there. Notice how she's listed in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, the wife of Uriah. So Tamar is called by name, Rahab's called by name, Ruth is called by name, but Bathsheba is known as the wife of Uriah. Isn't that interesting that Uriah's name is there, not Bathsheba's? And then as another side note, David wrote Psalm 51 as a confession of sin with Bathsheba. What David did was devastating, not just spiritually, but earthly. This seems to be the turning point where his family falls apart. A son from one of his wives violated one of the daughters of another wife. Then another son killed the son who violated the daughter. Then the son who killed the son who violated the daughter conspired to overtake the kingdom. Do you see the mess that David's family is? So things seem to get worse for David. Then in 1 Kings chapter 2, we see that David died and Solomon took over as king. Solomon was the son of Bathsheba, not from David's sin with Bathsheba. That child died. Solomon was born sometime later after David and Bathsheba were married. Again, things seem to be going well with Solomon and his rule. In fact, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3 says that Solomon loved the Lord. And during his reign, Solomon built the temple. We see that in 1 Kings chapter 6. Now, the temple was the place where the priests offered sacrifices to God, and it was also the physical representation that God was with his people. You can think of the temple as the permanent tabernacle. So if you remember the tabernacle in the wilderness, it was mobile. It was the place of God. It was the representation of God with his people. And back in the wilderness, they would dismantle it, move to the next location, and then set it back up in the encampment. The temple served basically the same purpose. It was just permanent. It was a grand stationary building. Things, however, didn't turn out well for Solomon. Over time, Solomon turns from God. According to 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3, Solomon had over 700 wives and 300 concubines. These wives turned his heart away from the Lord, and he followed other gods. We see his death in 1 Kings chapter 11, and this would have been about 931 B.C. Saul, David, and Solomon each reigned for about 40 years, so the time covered by these three kings was about 120 years. And then you see these three kings from 1 Samuel 10 to 1 Kings 11. That might be helpful for you to have an idea of the time span as you read these books. One message you should get from the first three kings of Israel is that these guys are not the promised king. These men were sinful. Now, I'll move fairly quickly through the rest of the books, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Let me say at this point that you can think of First and Second Chronicles as a summary of the Old Testament from Genesis 1 to the end of Second Kings. So it's not a continuation of the story following Second Kings. 
Now, First and Second Chronicles mainly covers the history of Judah. First and Second Kings, on the other hand, covers the history of both Israel and Judah. So First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles really overlap one another. They're really parallel books. And they cover much of the same information, though some of the details are added to one and not another. With that in mind, it's helpful when you read these books to compare Kings and Chronicles to get a clearer picture. Now, before we move forward, let me touch on the remaining Old Testament books. Job to Song of Solomon are known as wisdom literature and are not a continuation of the story. And then following the wisdom literature are the prophets, Isaiah to Malachi. And the prophets don't cover history either. Most of the prophets did their work during the time of First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles. For example, Zephaniah ministered during the time of Josiah, which you can find in Second Kings chapter 22 to chapter 23, verse 30, and in Second Chronicles chapters 34 and 35. And this is one of the reasons why it's helpful to know the timeline, to know the story, to know when these prophets ministered, then you understand the context, the historic context in which they're writing and ministering to the people. And it should help you understand the message of the prophet when you understand the context of the time in which they ministered. Now let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 12. From this point on, the kingdom was divided into two kingdoms. The ten northern tribes separated from the two southern tribes. The northern tribes were known as Israel and the two southern tribes were known as Judah. When we look at the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, from 1 Kings 12 to 2 Kings 17, we see that all of the kings did what was evil in God's sight. They allowed the people to commit idolatry, worshiping the false gods of the people of the land. Remember how they failed to drive out the inhabitants from the land during the time of the judges? You see, God knew what was going to happen if they failed to do so. He knew this would happen. He knows our sinful hearts. That's why he told them, drive the people out. But they failed to do so, and they fell into idolatry. And then in 722 BC, Assyria conquered Israel. Then Assyria took many of the Jewish people and scattered them throughout the known world. And then they resettled other people in Israel, where many of the Israelites married Gentiles. Now, fast forward many years later to the New Testament. And occasionally, you'll see a reference to Samaritans. Now, Samaritans were actually a product of the resettlement. And this is one of the reasons why the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. So when you look at John chapter 4, when Jesus asked a Samaritan woman for water, she was surprised that Jesus talked to her. And John tells us why in verse 9. Jews didn't deal with Samaritans. Let me give you another interesting piece of information What do you think happened when Assyria spread the Jewish people around Asia Minor and elsewhere? These people had no access to their place of worship, so they formed synagogues. And you fast forward several hundred years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, where did the Apostle Paul often go to evangelize? The synagogues throughout Asia Minor. Do you see what God did? God punished the people of Israel and dispersed them throughout the world. And these people had a seed of the gospel in the Old Testament. So it makes sense that Paul would start in the synagogues. In fact, in Acts chapter 14, verse 1, Paul and Barnabas went to a synagogue in Iconium, and as a result, many Jews believed. So God was setting the stage to take the gospel throughout the world. Coming back to the Old Testament timeline, 
and the time when Assyria conquered Israel, God spared Judah from the same fate. However, this didn't last long. Though some of the kings of Judah did what was right in God's sight, many of them did not. And in 586 BC, Babylon defeated Judah and took many of the Jewish people into exile. And Israel at this point was officially gone until 1948, following World War II. Did God fail in his promise? Not at all. According to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, there's a Sabbath rest to come. You see, the land was never the end game. God has preserved a people for himself from the very beginning, and he will do so till the end. Let me once again return to the story. After Babylon conquered Judah, Persia conquered Babylon, and they allowed the Jewish people to return to Israel. We see this in the book of Ezra. Now, when they returned to the land, they had some rebuilding to do. So the book of Nehemiah discusses the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem, and the book of Ezra discusses the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And during this time, when the exiles returned to the land, several prophets ministered to the people, Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. Malachi was likely the last prophetic book written, and that was probably around 400 B.C., So the time difference between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament is about 400 years. So from the end of the Old Testament, it seems that God stopped speaking through prophets, and some have referred to this time as the 400 years of silence. However, this isn't the end of the story because God wasn't done. At that point, the Savior had not yet come. Remember, God made a promise, and he had yet to fulfill that promise. So the story's not over. Now there's one more book I want to introduce, and that's Esther. I'm not going to go into the story. I'll leave that up to you to read. This story takes place during the time of the exile and the return to the land. And it takes place in Persia. And it's a story of preservation. God preserves his people and strikes his enemy. Remember, in order for God to keep his promise to Satan, to Abraham, to David, and to us, He must preserve the line of Christ. And that's what he did in the story of Esther. Now, what can we gather from our review of 1 Samuel to Esther? First, the people should have listened to God. For example, God was their king, but they wanted a king like the nations, so they got Saul. Second, God keeps his promise. God is preserving the line of Christ in order to keep his promise. Third, the promised king, the eternal king promised to David, had not yet come. All the kings of Israel and many of the kings of Judah did what was evil in God's sight. Furthermore, the proof that none of these kings were the promised king is that they all died, revealing their own guilt of violating God's law. Let me make one final point. When you understand that Old Testament history isn't merely history, it makes it a bit easier to read. It's the story of God doing several things. He made a promise and he's keeping his promise. It reveals the corruption and wickedness of mankind in the relentless grace of God, in spite of our sinfulness. And God is unthwarted in bringing our Savior to rescue us. So hopefully this helps you get a better understanding of the Bible story of the Old Testament. Therefore, when you read the Old Testament, hopefully you see more clearly what's going on. God is keeping his promise and nothing can stop its fulfillment. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at 
If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. And remember, faith comes by hearing.